We're going to return this morning to our study in the book of Acts. This morning we're going to begin looking at chapter 13, which begins a new section in Luke's historical account of the beginnings of Christianity and of the spread of the gospel. But I'd like us to go back to chapter 12 and begin reading at the end of that chapter, uh, verse 24, and we'll read through chapter 13 and verse 5. You know, chapter divisions and all that, that's not inspired, and sometimes they are not put at the best places. But here we have uh, something I believe ties in chapter 12 and chapter 13 and really ties in the rest of the book. But in chapter 12, beginning in verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia from, from there, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. When we were at seminary in Yazoo City or Jackson, Mississippi, we went to church in Yazoo City. And the pastor, David Justly, would always end the reading of Scripture with the words from Isaiah 40 in verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The context of this previous verse tells us what he's referring to here in that passage in Isaiah. It says, all flesh is grass and all its loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, the people are indeed grass. And then it says, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The contrast there in Isaiah is between man who is here today and gone tomorrow and the word of God. That contrast is plain. The word of our God stands forever. Forever. The hymn we sing, we fade and die like flowers that grow in beauty, like tender grass that will soon disappear. But evermore the love of God is changeless, still shown to those who look to Him in fear. 
this truth that is taught is taught not only here and in Isaiah, but throughout the Scriptures. It's the permanency of the Word of God, the enduring nature of God's Word. Psalm 119, verse 39 says, Forever, Lord, Your Word stands in heaven. When the Lord Jesus Christ began His public ministry, He spoke on the law of God in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. And He said, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And when He used the words, Assuredly I say to you, He was saying there's no equivocation here. He was speaking with all of the decisiveness of a solemn oath. Heaven and earth, he refers to, are are signs of permanency and stability. The Scriptures, he says, are more permanent, more abiding than heaven and earth. At the end of his ministry, in chapter 24, He said these words, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter calls the Word of God, which he's referring to the Word, he said, which we preach to you, he calls it the imperishable seed. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 40. All flesh is grass, and all of its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We look here at verse 24 of chapter 12. We read, But the word of God grew and multiplied. We see there's that same contrast brought out in living color. In real life, verse 23, notice there's a contrast with what goes before. Speaking of Herod, the Tetrarch, it says, or, or, or Herod Agrippa, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. But, and there's the contrast, The word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. He died, but the word of God continued to grow and to be multiplied. Here, Luke in this chapter 12 had given the account of this great king, King Herod Agrippa I. He had great power and great wealth and a great ego. He could have someone put to death with a motion of a hand. His grandfather, Herod the Great, you remember when he heard the wise men came looking for the king of the Jews who had been born, he became enraged. And he issued an authoritative command and says he sent men and killed all the boys who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity who were under two years old. He was an angry king. Herod Agrippa was also an angry monarch. 
And this bloody minion of the devil was doing all within his power to impede the progress of the gospel. We read at the beginning of chapter 12 that he had the Apostle James beheaded. That certainly must have been a tragic loss for the church. But when Herod saw that it pleased the Jewish people, he determined to do the same thing to the Apostle Peter. He had him arrested, imprisoned, and bound in chains between two soldiers. But we know that God had other plans for Peter. And just before Herod carried out his evil plan to have him executed the very next morning, God sent his angel in the nick of time to rescue his servant from his prison. And so he did. And Peter was a free man. But Herod goes on doing his tyrannical thing. He had the nations of Tyre and Sidon literally eating out of his hands. Though not even under his jurisdiction, they were helplessly dependent upon the king's country for grain. Just like in the Old Testament, Joseph, because of the famine in Egypt, anyone who wanted grain had to come to Joseph. But unlike Joseph, who was a kind and generous man, Herod was a tyrant. And he knew just how to wield his power. And his power seemed to be growing even stronger. And Tyre and Sidon, they figured out a way to get on the good side of the king. And then we read in verse 21 that on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. He made it a big occasion and he had to speak. Josephus says regarding his royal apparel, remember, that it was made of pure silver. And that when the sunlight hit it, it was like a bright light. It said Herod took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And it says in verse 22, the people repeatedly cried out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod accepted the praises they brought to him. You remember when the Lord Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and that triumphal entry and the people were following him and people were coming out of the city and they were throwing down the palm branches and they were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Rebuke them! Stop them! And under ordinary circumstances, that would be the appropriate thing to do. And that's what Herod should have done. Stop them! Stop what you're saying. I'm just a man. The difference, Jesus was not just a man. He was indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was very God of very God. And so Jesus could say, if they stop, the stones will cry out. But Herod accepted their praises. So God sent His angel once again. This time not to rescue but to bring judgment on this wicked king who was intoxicated with his own power and intoxicated with the praises of his people. And it seems that at his very zenith, God, whom we know from Scripture, does according to his will in the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. He struck him 
And he was eaten by worms and died. You think of this king. Could have been so much different for him had he only learned the lesson of Psalm 2. He was supposed to be steeped in the Scriptures. Why didn't he learn that lesson that says, Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. But he didn't learn that lesson. And so the wrath of God did come down upon him. What a tragic but totally fitting end to his bloody reign. Now Satan, who's really behind all of this opposition, does all that he can by all the means at his disposal to hinder the work of God and to hinder the spread of the gospel. But... Verse 24 says, the word of God grew and multiplied. What a beautiful, wonderful contrast. He died and was no more. But the word of God grew and multiplied. John Stott said at the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting. At the end, he himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the Word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish His own in their place. John Calvin said, Though the Word of God seems oftentimes to be oppressed with wicked tyranny of men, yet it getteth up the head again and by by and by. For Luke determines not only what had happened after Herod was dead, but also by this example to encourage us that we may be assured that God will do that in all ages when he what he did then to the end of the gospel may at length break through all the impediments of the enemies and that more that the more the church is diminished, it may the more increase through heavenly blessing. So he says the word of God grew and multiplied. Now before we go any further, let's just ask the question, what does the Luke mean here by the word of the Lord? Well, the word of the Lord is what God himself has said. Uh, This term can refer to several things. Virgin points out several. He says it applies, first of all, to the word of his purpose. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. The word of our God. He has said it and it shall be done. He has purposed it and it will come to pass. That's what God says. No one can stop him. No one can thwart his purposes. No one can stop him or even question him. What are you doing? You see, God does according to his will in the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stop him. But it can also refer to his word of promise. When God promises something, he fulfills it. God doesn't make empty promises. He doesn't make promises he can't keep. You know, as parents, we promise our kids all kinds of things as they're growing up and And sometimes we forget to do them. Sometimes we're unable to do them. Sometimes something comes up. 
Now, all kinds of things can get in our way, but not so with God. He is the one who rules and reigns over all. And when He promises something, it's going to be done. It can also refer to the Word of God, the complete Word of God. The Word of God is the Scriptures, the Old and the New Testaments. The New Testament had not been written or completed at this time, but it refers to all of God's Word. For holy men of God, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were moved by the Holy Spirit and so they spoke and so they wrote. And so what they said and what they wrote, these prophets, was what God Himself was saying. But it can refer also, the Word of God refer more narrowly to the Gospel itself, which these apostles and disciples were preaching. They were preaching the Word of God, which was the Gospel. That is the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. That through His atoning death and His resurrection, men, sinners, wicked sinners can be saved. They can be reconciled to God. That was the message that they were sent out to preach. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. That was the message. And He appointed them and gave them this message of reconciliation to tell others they could be made right with God. Their sins could be forgiven. They could live forever with Him in heaven. That was the message. That's the Word of God. If you just... Look back in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the Word of God. He's referring to that event at the house of Cornelius. God sent Peter to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, to preach to him the Word of God. And so he did. He preached the Word of God. And that's what it's referred to. They received the Word of God. And then look at verse 20 of chapter 11. It says there, but some of them, this is in Antioch, were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. You see, they preached the Word of God. The ones previous to that in verse 19 that says they preach the word to no one but the Jews only. But they're preaching God's word. The gospel is God's word. It's the good news of salvation through Christ. Spurgeon said the word of the gospel which we preach. For so the apostle, as he quotes the passage, this is the word by which the gospel is preached to you. He's referring to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1. And he says this, Spurgeon says, that word stands forever. Brothers and sisters, the old gospel of the apostles is the gospel of today. There have been a notion abroad about discoveries in theology. And he's writing, you know, back in the 1800s. That's when this new theology really started taking hold. Uh, oh, we've misunderstood the Bible for all of these centuries, but now these experts told us there's a new way, a better way. But Spurgeon goes on to say, but recollect that everything that is new in preaching is not true. And everything that is true is not new. 
We may say concerning the preaching of the gospel, the old is better. Let us keep to the good old ways. You will never advance upon Peter or Paul. If you do, you'll have to go back again. (laughs) All the advances there are, are but running on a fool's errand, running before the clouds, running beyond the wisdom of God. And he who is wise beyond what is written will only find himself landed in folly. You see, the gospel, the old-fashioned gospel that they preached is the gospel we are to preach. It's relevant for us as it was for them. People say, oh, no, you have to have a new message, a new method, and some new way to put it. Because people won't accept that message now. You have to have something that's more relevant. Friends, there is nothing more relevant than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is still the good news for sinners. It's good news to find out that we can be reconciled to God. It's good news to know that we don't have to perish. But we can be saved. And we can know God the true and the living God. We can know Him. But I want you to see it. My point is here to show you that here in chapter 12, when it says the Word of God grew and multiplied, it grew and multiplied because it is the Word of God. It's not the Word of men. It's not some clever thing that someone came up with. No, this is the Word of God. This is why it kept spreading. Because God was its author. The Gospel, Paul said, did not come from men. I wasn't taught it by men, but I received it from God. Because it is God's Gospel. You remember the words of Gamaliel back in chapter 5. The religious leaders had arrested Peter and John. Their crime, according to them, was preaching about Jesus. Preaching the Word of God. Preaching the Gospel. And they were infuriated, Luke tells us. And nearly decided to execute them. Peter's been in this boat before. (laughs) Where he thought he was going to be executed. Well, they were about to be executed. But then a Pharisee named Gamaliel, one of them a teacher of the law, respected by all the people. He stood up in the council. And he said to the men of Israel, be careful as to what you're about to do with these men. He had some sense. I don't know if he's, don't think he was a Christian, a believer in Christ at the time. I don't believe that, but he had some sense. That's what's lacking so much in our own day. People don't even have common sense. Well, he was one of a thousand and he had some common sense. And so he gave them a couple of examples of men in the past who rose up claiming to be somebody. But in time, they just withered away. And they're gone. And he says, they're no more here. They're like a flash in the pan. And they're gone. And then he said, now, I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is the work of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Now, those are wise words. 
And I, you think anybody could come to that conclusion. If it's not of God, you don't need to worry about it. If it is of God, you don't want to be fighting against God, do you? Now, I don't know if any of them ever acknowledged that this was so, that he was, that this was of God, but that's exactly what they were doing. This was God's word, not man's. And that's what makes the difference here. The word of God continued to grow and to multiply. It's God's word. When Paul came to the Thessalonian church, and he writes of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, uh, when I came, I, I, for this reason I thank God without ceasing. Remember in Sunday school we talked about thanking God for the conversion of others. What does that say? That, that means that God is the author of their conversion. If you're thanking someone for something, that means they gave it. And he thanks God for their conversion. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, talking about the gospel, we came to Thessalonica, we preached the word of God, we preached the gospel, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. You see, it's a message from God. God is its author. That's why when we preach the gospel to you, if we're preaching it accurately, what we find in the scriptures, we're preaching it accurately to you. Your controversy, if you have one, is with God. Uh, that helps me as I'm a preacher. I know people don't like preachers sometimes and, and all, but if I'm preaching God's word and you don't like me for that, well, your problem is with God. That's what Paul has in mind when he says, in another place, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. <clears throat> He's talking about the gospel in, in 1 Corinthians. From whom did Paul receive the gospel? Well, he tells us in Galatians 1 that he received it from God. He says this in chapter 1, uh, chapter, uh, 1 verse 11 of Galatians. He says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the Galatians, what they were thinking about doing was giving up on the gospel, turning their back on the gospel, going back to Judaism. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, you need to understand the nature of this gospel that we preach to you. This isn't the word of men. You see, the word of men we can turn away from and we should turn away from. In the sense, you don't make what men say to be your standard. We don't make what men say to be the object of our faith. We must believe what God has said. And that's what Paul is saying. You're turning your back on what God has said, for the gospel comes from Him. And that was Peter's point of encouragement in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. He says, you've been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. 
That's the imperishable seed. This wasn't just some story you believed or some, some set of principles that you've adopted. That's not what becoming a Christian is. It's accepting and receiving the gospel as it is in Jesus Christ. It's the word of God that endures forever. This is the word that was preached to you. Which you must believe. An article I found on the internet by Wendell Winkler. <laughs> he made some good points. He, he said, when Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes became ruler in Syria in 175 B.C., he destroyed the Jewish temple, sold the people of Jeru Jerusalem into slavery, and sought to do away with the sacred writings, forcing Greek culture upon the Jews. This was all done in an effort to substitute Zeus worship for the worship of God. Frankie Hirsch in Abomination of Desolation wrote, The observance of all Jewish laws, especially those relating to the Sabbath and to circumcision, were forbidden under pain of death. The Jewish cult was set aside. In all the cities of Judea, sacrifices must be brought to the pagan deities. Representatives of the crown everywhere enforced the edict. Once a month, the search was instituted, and whoever had a secret copy of the law or had observed a rite of circumcision was condemned to death. However, God saw to it that the efforts to destroy the sacred writings of the Old Testament fail. We still have the Old Testament scriptures, don't we? <clears throat> then also, the Roman emperor Diocletian decreed death for any person who owned the Bible. After two years, he boasted, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. In fact, he is said to have erected a monument over the ashes of burned Bibles. However, when Constantine came to the throne and desired copies of the Bible, offering a reward to anyone who could deliver one within 25, 25 hours, 50 copies of the Word were offered to the, to the emperor. Voltaire was a notorious, a notorious French infidel. In 1778, he boasted that within 100 years, the Bible would be no more. Later, the very press that printed the blasphemous prediction was used to print Bibles. And the house in which he lived was used by the Geneva Bible Society to store Bibles and as a distribution center. I'm not sure if that's actually true, or maybe it's true in the past. It's certainly not now. But then he used one more example. Bob Ingersoll, an American agnostic, once held a Bible up and boasted, in 15 years I will have this book in the morgue. Within 15 years, Ingersoll was in the morgue. However, the Word of God lives on. You see, they can do everything they want to destroy it. And they've tried and attempted everything they can to destroy it. But it continues to live on. It continues to grow and to multiply. The body, Luther said, they may kill. God's truth abideth still. You look, even before the Reformation, so much of the Scriptures had been buried and had been taken away from the people. They didn't have copies. They didn't, couldn't read it in their own language. And yet God began a revival. And back in that day, a revival that still were reaping the effects today. 
where men rediscovered the truth that Jesus Christ saves. Jesus and Him alone. And so someone said, And so, beloved, take heed. Let each of us take heed that we keep to the enduring truth of God. Let us never be tempted by the flesh of novelty or by the attractions of supposed intelligence to turn aside from the Word of God to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this Word, it is because there is no light in them. So it says the Word of God grew and multiplied. Infidels, skeptics have done everything they can to discredit it. Seminaries are supposed to be a place where you learn the Bible. So many seminaries are teaching that the Bible can't be trusted. The Bible can't be believed. And yet, even with all of the works of the devil to cast doubt on the Word of God, the Word of God continues to grow and to multiply. It's because it is indeed the Word of the living God. Now, as we continue to read on, I didn't get very far with this exposition into chapter 13, but we, we begin to see how the Lord, what the Lord did to ensure that the Word would continue and grow and multiply. In verse 26, it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. They're back in the picture. They were sent on a mission of mercy to the poor saints in Jerusalem. They were carrying with them the alms that were taken up to help them during this famine that was on the land. So here they've sent Saul and Barnabas on this mission of mercy. Now they've returned. I can't help but to think that those who are faithful in small things will be put over greater things. And so we read in chapter 13, now the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas and so forth. And then as they minister, verse 2, uh, to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. This was just the very beginning of a missionary movement that would take the gospel to the world, to the Gentiles. Some Gentiles have been saved, but now the word word is being sent out. And sent out by basically three men into the big world. But God was using it. The world would come and hear and come and believe. And so that's what we see. And then, then it says that they... They went out and they preached the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So the Word of God kept multiplying and growing. It's because it's God's Word. This is not the Word of men. And it's growing. And here we are 2,000 years later talking about it, reading it, believing it, preaching it, hearing it preached. It's the Word of the living God. Indeed, the body they may kill but His truth abides still. Now this just should tell you that you should have confidence. Confidence in that God is not going to allow anything to stop this movement. It's His work. It's His Word. This isn't the work of men. This is His work. Building His kingdom. When He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's speaking of the church. I will build My church. That wasn't an idle boast. That wasn't a wishful thought. 
That was a divine declaration. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Didn't mean they wouldn't try. They tried and they've tried through the years, through the centuries. Even in a service where the word of God is being preached, Jesus gave the parable. The sower goes out to sow and he throws the seed and it lands on various soil. The first soil is the is the, the rocky ground or the pathway. It says the, the birds of the air come and they take it away. When Jesus explains that, He says that's Satan. When the Word of God is sown, before it could have time to even get past your thinking or into your thinking or into your meditation, into your consideration, He takes it away by the distraction. Something comes along and takes it away. That's happening even here in this place. Some of you, it's gone in one ear and out the other. Remember, that's Satan's work. But God's Word abides still. God's Word continues to grow and continues to multiply. Maybe it's to someone else, but Satan has successfully snatched it away from you. You come to hear God's Word, you should pray, Lord, help me to listen. Help me to hear. Help me to believe. Help me not to be distracted. Help me not to be thinking about the other things of the day or the week. But help me to focus on Your Word. Your Word gives life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Don't run to philosophers, no matter how popular they are. Don't run to the philosophers to see what they think and what they what information or good ideas they have. You go to the Word of God. Philosophy will not save, will not help. It's only God's Word. Man shall live by the Word of God. Following God's Word, entrance into thy Word gives light. And again, quoting that same passage, if they speak not according to this Word, God's Word, it is because there is no light in them. So many people are running to people, listening to people, following people, reading books that have no light in them because they don't follow the precepts of God's Word. It's God's Word that brings light. That's where you'll find hope because it's God's Word that teaches us who we are, where we came from, where we're going. Why is the world in such a mess? The Word of God is the only sufficient explanation. And it is a sufficient explanation because it's what God says. He said, but it doesn't match up with science. Listen, if you want to go with science, you're going to be changing. In fact, after you're dead and gone, it'll change again. Go to the Word of God. Let God's Word tell you who you are. You're not just a machine. You're not just... Uh, these chemicals and everything's just a chemical reaction. The Bible says you're made in God's own image by God Himself. Created in the image of God. Male and female, made He them. Don't let the world tell you what you're to think. You go to the Word of God. And you may have to stand alone with it because the world is going headlong into a lot of false teaching. There are a lot of false prophets gone out in the world, and they're not all religious false prophets. 
They can be secular false prophets. They can be scientific false prophets. I want to be careful. I'm not saying we're speaking against science, but only when science contradicts God's Word. You see, if you've got the option, what God's Word says and what science says, go with what God's Word says. Science is going to change anyway. So many things that have been brought up over the years, even as they, the critics and the higher critics and the skeptics look at the Word of God, they say, oh, you, you can't believe this or you can't believe that. This didn't happen. It couldn't have happened. It couldn't have gone this way. And over time, the archaeologist uncovers something, something. No, I guess it, I guess it is true. And they have to go back and change their position again. We need to stick with the Word of God. That's the firm foundation. Don't look to men. Look to God. And God is the one who made us. And He is there. And He is not silent. As Francis Schaeffer said, God is there and He is not silent. And you hear Him not by closing your eyes and trying to get some vibes from God. You open your eyes and you read. You read His Word. That's how you'll know what God says. Because He has revealed Himself in the Bible. He has revealed the Gospel to us in written language so we can read and understand and believe. The Bible tells us what went wrong, that we've sinned against God. And the Bible tells us that we can't do anything to fix it. That's what men think. We can fix it. We fix everything else. We can fix that. The Bible says, no, there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible tells us that no flesh shall be justified in His sight. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. The Bible tells us there's only one way. That one way is the same way the disciples taught. It's the same message that Cornelius heard. It's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has done it all. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's the message of the Gospel. That Jesus did what we cannot do. He paid the full price for our sins. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And His righteousness can be charged to our account. Not by doing some great thing or performing some sacrament, but by believing, simply believing, trusting Him. The Bible says, if we believe in Him, we have eternal life. What a guarantee. A promise that He cannot break. God has promised, whoever believes in His Son has everlasting life. Do you believe in Him? Are you trusting in Him? Is He your Savior? Let's pray.